Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and today I'm joined by Natalie Taylor, Head of Financial Advice at Monarch Money. In addition to her role at Monarch, she is a practicing financial advisor and was previously Director of Advice Implementation at the well-known LearnVest. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So I talked to friend of the show and previous guest, Brendan Fraser. And I said, look, who's the best person you've had on your show in the last year or two, fully expecting him to say it would be me. And he actually said it was you. And so I have since had a good time digging into some of your work and your thought leadership. So we're very, very pleased to have you. And thank you to Brendan for uh, for the referral. So Natalie, one of my favorite soapboxes uh, is the interplay between technology and behavior. And just recently, I've come across a couple of examples that I find really fascinating. One had to do with gum sales at the checkout line. So since the advent of the iPhone, gum sales are down over 20% because people are no longer impulse purchasing gum and mints while they're checking out their groceries. They're they're looking at their phones and they're kept busy in that way. Another fascinating one that I saw recently was that uh, Netflix with the advent of their, you know, just sort of auto just keep watching button that auto takes you to the next episode their viewership is up 70% because people don't have to sort of volitionally choose to watch the next episode. It just sort of happens to them. So you are right at this nexus of technology and behavior. You're a financial planner yourself. You've worked for a couple of prominent fintech firms and been a fintech consultant. Talk to us about how technology shapes the way that we act and how, you know, we know we need to behave well, but I think that sometimes we don't even understand the water that we're swimming in with respect to technology. So what have you seen with the ways that technology can induce us to make good or bad decisions? Mm, yeah, that's such a good question. I think before I was in fintech, I just thought of tech as neutral, right. which was probably just ignorant. <laughs> um, but once I got into fintech and got to design experiences um, with phenomenal teams of, of how people experience information digitally, it really opened my eyes to, to quite a few things. And because financial planning is what I care about, and it's sort of my, my missional work in that space, I've definitely seen some ways that information can be presented that, that creates different behaviors. I would say one of those is when we think about investor behavior, um, which I know is a, is a specialty of yours, um, I think very simple things like if we show a decline in percentage versus dollars, you log in and you see that you lost you know $10,000 today, that feels like a lot. If you log in and you see that you lost half a percent today, that doesn't feel like as much. And so I think there's some very simple things in terms of how we lead investors to behave in how we present the information. I think there's other things like when we're tracking goals for a client, whether it's retirement or college or you know debt reduction, et cetera, but especially for 
market-related goals where there are factors at play that are outside of the user's control, whether that's inflation assumptions or tax rates or investment uh, performance. I think having a range of on-track, a visual range of being in the realm of on-track versus a specific value or an absolute value, and you've either met the bar or not, I think is really critical because you know, we're, we're always thinking about what's the CTA, what's the call to action for the user when we display any information or create any kind of experience digitally? What behavior are we trying to drive in the user? And largely, we want them to have a well-diversified portfolio that they rebalance over time and that they stick with when the market is good and when the market is not so good because, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but over the long term, that's the best thing they can do in terms of investor behavior in the market. So I think there's quite a bit that we can do in the way that we display information. Um, I would say one more is focusing. I, I find that a lot of tracking in the financial space is about outcome. So you needed you know, a million dollars by this date to be on track for retirement, and you have X amount of dollars. And again, because there are things that the, the user does not control about that outcome, I think it's also very critical to focus on the activity that the user is taking. So rather than just saying you needed a million and you're only at 950, I think if we couple that information, because we're not trying to hide the truth from anyone, but if we couple it with a range of outcomes in addition to a focus on activity, so user, yes, you're 50K short of where we thought you'd be right now, but you're still in the range of on track. And, you know, your commitment to this goal was to max fund your 401k every single year. And you've done that. And you're absolutely on track with the activities that you committed to. And I think pairing activity and outcome is also really critical. And I think that often gets missed in the way that we design technology in the financial space. There's so many things that I want to follow up on there. I think like you, before I started working in the space, I think I just took tech for granted. And we have to be so thoughtful about the design and I think also the incentives. I'm not going to like name names today, but I think there are fintechs that have perverse incentives, if you will, incentives to induce people to overtrade or to, uh, you know, take on excessive debt or to make poor decisions and so I think you have to make sure that your tech provider is, is aligned with you from an incentive perspective and also that they're thoughtful about everything from the order to the framing to the presentation to the colors all have a big, big impact on our behavioral decisions. You know, and the thing that I love that you talked about was helping investors focus on controlling the controllable because, mm-hmm. you know, that, that million dollar number is going to be partially influenced by market movement, which is out of our control. It's going to be influenced by things like wars overseas, as we're seeing now, that are that are out of our control. But what have they done? Have they lived up to their side of the bargain? Because if they do that long enough, they're going to be fine, right? Yes. If they control the controllable, they focus on those behaviors, they're going to be fine over time. But sometimes we actually cultivate a sense of learned helplessness by rewarding and punishing people based on things that are absolutely out of their control. Yes. And then we accidentally incentivize them to take control in the wrong areas. Yes. Like I need to make a trade. I need to pull back. I need to invest. I need to sell. I need to buy. 
when the most of the time that's not actually the place where they should be exerting their control or their influence in their financial life. Absolutely. So I'm preaching to the converted here about the the importance of behavioral coaching. You're a, a big believer. The people who listen to this podcast are big believers. But I want to talk about the ways that tech can facilitate things that seem sort of soft, you know, things like connection and care and empathy. We sort of, I think, uh, think about these things in a, in a very analog way. Like this is human to human. This is old school sort of hand to hand combat with our clients. Is there a way that tech can facilitate all of these, you know, call them softer considerations around connection and care and empathy for clients? Mm, it's such a good question. And I, I would say that, you know, I started my career on the traditional financial advisor, financial planner, private practice route. And then I took a hard pivot into fintech for many years. And now I spend half of my time in each world. And so, um, you know, the human versus robo debate, I think, has been hotly contested in our industry, but has really like been a very like clear line through my entire career of which side of that am I on and what is the value of a human and what can you replace by technology? What needs to be replaced? What can't be replaced? So I think it's a really important question. And I think the ways that tech can can help with the behavioral coaching piece, I think there's the very clear like time savings, right? Can we use tech in our practices to make us more efficient, to give us more time with clients? Um, to be thinking about clients, to be communicating with clients and connecting with clients. I think that's sort of an obvious one. I think tech taking care of the quantitative so that we can focus on the qualitative, you know, is is relevant here. I think that there are some assessments and there's more and more. I'm almost overwhelmed by all of the options that exist now, but ways that tech can help us do assessments for clients, especially over time to understand and to deepen our understanding of where our clients stand behaviorally and where we can most impact them from that perspective. So I think that is very helpful. And then I think there's, you know, it's interesting to kind of look outside of our industry and say, where is behavioral coaching being magnified by technology? And I think Noom, um, the weight loss app, is an interesting example. You know, they're trying to not just change the way that people eat, but how they think about food. And I think that you know, similarly in our industry, we can use tech to influence the way that people perceive their money and their financial decisions. Even in the low tech deliverables that I create for clients, you know, those deliverables are really focused on how do I visually represent something to help create a behavior in the client? How do I create context and perspective for the client so that they can make the decision that's relevant for them in this moment by the way that I present information to them. And I think that helps encourage the right behaviors. I, I'm always wanting the client to come up with the answer in the, in the meeting rather than me saying, here's what you should or shouldn't do. But if I can present the information in a way that gives them the appropriate context and perspective, then they can make a great decision for themselves. And I think, I think tech can help us do that and, and really legitimately help decision-making. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's not like an either or binary, but how can we use the tech to facilitate and streamline and deepen those connections? What's our role in all of this? I got asked, I was on a webinar recently and they asked me a bunch of questions and I felt well prepared for them. And then at the very end, the question was, 
you know, something to the effect of what's, what's one practical thing that advisors can, can do today to improve their ability to be behavioral coaches. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, that's what I've been talking about for the last hour. And so I wanted to, I wanted to sort of give a different answer. And I said, look, they can, they can go to therapy. You know, one of the things that I think advisors can do is go to therapy and work on themselves. So if, when you think about us as advisors or practitioners, what is the role of self-care, self-work, introspection in us being good behavioral coaches for our clients? Mm. Yeah, I think there's a really important role to play in terms of self-work and introspection. I think just like therapists um, need their own therapists, uh, I think it's important for us as behavioral coaches and in the role that we play in being a thought partner for clients, that we are in a good space and that we can manage ourselves so that we can truly be present for clients. Uh, I think in the early part of my career, I spent so much time, you know, I was 23. I looked about 14 when I started and I couldn't wait to turn 30, you know, because I just wanted to tell clients I was in my 30s. Now I'm in my 40s and I'm like, well, but I, I think that my preoccupation with proving that I knew what I was talking about really hindered my ability to be present with clients. And so it was in my own personal growth and professional growth, getting to a place where I felt comfortable and confident and can bring the right presence, both in gravitas, I would say, but also an actual presence to receive what the client was saying, to hear what they were communicating to me, even if it wasn't in the words that they were choosing in their silences, I was not able to be present enough in my early career to be able to do that work. And I think that there's so much value that I create for clients in being able to hear those things or ask the right follow-up question. The initial questions are almost never as impactful as the follow-up question. So I think it makes a big difference. And, And I think it, in doing work on myself has fundamentally helped me shift my perspective in seeing the client as the hero and for me to stop being the hero, that I'm not trying to prove my worth to the client. I'm not trying to prove that I'm their hero. I want to lift them up and help them feel great about the decisions that they're making. I want to be a thought partner for them so that they can feel comfortable and confident. And it, I think because of the work that I've done on myself has become so much less about me and more about them. And I think that's one of the things that makes the experience powerful for clients. And I don't know that I could have gotten there without doing the work on myself. When you talk about this transition from, you know, thinking you needed to be the hero to, to understanding that, that they needed to be the hero of the story and, and take a more active role in it. When you had these realizations about perhaps being overly formal or talking too much or whatever it was, what was the catalyst that, that spurred that? Because I, I'm, I'm curious what what brought about that insight? Because we know that sometimes we can be uh, bias blind. We can be blind to our own, the ways that we come across. What prompted that, that change or that self-work on your part? I think a lot of it was the way that my career has unfolded. And, um, you know, looking back, it may seem like it was a strategic path, but it really wasn't. Um, I was, I was doing the best work that I could find that was most meaningful to me at every moment. So in that way, I suppose it was strategic, but it was almost an accident that I ended up in fintech. In being in fintech and joining LearnVest, one of the early roles that I had was to manage the brand voice for the RIA. And what that meant was 
helping to train our team of what grew to be 40 plus advisors in how they communicate with clients, with their clients. How do you connect via phone? We didn't even do video meetings. We were just on phone, phone calls with our clients. And I listened to, I'm going to say 120, maybe 150 hours of client calls, client advisor calls, and then provided coaching to all of our advisors there. And I, I think in doing that work and having to dissect, how do I communicate what works and what doesn't about it and why? And when I could take myself out of the advisor seat and listen to the advisor client experience, I could really hear for myself, no, no, this, that's not, this client doesn't need to understand how Roth conversions work at this moment. This client needs this other follow-up question that's about where they are in a different way. But when we're so focused on what do we do as a financial planner, how do I prove my value? We can't get there. And so I think that helped me get a lot of the perspective. And then I got to have this like sort of beautiful hiatus between my first seven or eight years in private practice working directly with clients, went into fintech for several years, and then two years ago, re-entered private practice. And I think this being able to recognize the shift in how I felt about client relationships, how I approached client relationships, how I conducted those conversations has helped me further understand what's changed and kind of realize why that's changed. I worked for a, a, a bank in Canada for one summer as part of like a very focused project. And they had five or six effectively social worker types on, on staff the advisors recorded every single one of their client interactions. And these, uh, these coaches would at random pick, pick an interaction and break it down the same way an athlete breaks down game tape. And they learned so much and the advisors learned so much. And it was just able to, to slow down that process, look at it from a new angle. And I think you talked about being in a new seat. I think that's one of the reasons why I recommended therapy there's a power imbalance anytime you know an advisor sits down with with his or her clients you have a, a power advantage you're the knowledgeable one they're in your office etc it's interesting to have the shoe be on the other foot and for you to have some empathy for what it's like to be the one being asked the hard questions to be the one being asked to introspect and and talk about difficult things I think all of those things, however advisors can find a way to look at their advice giving in a new seat from a new seat from a new angle, I think it's a powerful, a powerful step. Oh, absolutely. I think it makes a huge difference to to free yourself from the perspective that you automatically put on, you subconsciously put on by being in the advisor seat. It's tremendous. And you know, in my own practice. Cindy Hall, who's another lead advisor with my practice, uh, she served clients in her past. She led a team of financial planners in her past. She's very experienced, but for the last two years, she hasn't worked directly with clients. And just the, at the beginning of this year, she's become a lead advisor uh, with my practice. And it's been beautiful getting to sit in on her meetings and to to discuss with her afterwards, you know, how how was the client feeling in this moment? And what do you think they needed? And Sometimes that's financial stuff and sometimes it's human stuff. And a lot of times it's like just all muddled together, but it is just such a gift to be outside of that seat and to gain perspective from someone who 
is observing. And, you know, I've had moments when I've gotten that I got a ton of mentorship in my first seven years. And that was such a gift to have somebody speaking into my life that way. Yeah, it's a it's a great piece of advice to to have um, partner meetings with other folks in your practice to see how they go about it and to leave yourselves enough time to have that breakdown, to talk about what went well, what went poorly and and what you could do differently. So uh, in preparing for a presentation recently, I came across uh, a meta-analysis of the value that advisors add. And it was done by Merrill Lynch about five years ago, and they looked at eight or nine different things that an advisor does, and then they they shared every piece of research on the value added by it. So each of these things, you know, something like tax management would have five, six, seven different studies uh, with, with the varying estimates of how much value tax management added. So I looked at these things and I broke them down into what we'll call sort of, you know, old school meat and potatoes, financial stuff versus the new school behavioral stuff. And what stuck out to me is first of all, that advisors are adding a ton of value generally, broadly, right? There's, there's a ton of value in all this work, but the value added by the old school blocking and tackling was on the order of 35 to 60 basis points per item, right? So 35 basis points on average for something like asset allocation, which is very central to, to what an advisor does, of course. But then if you looked at the behavioral pieces, it gets gaudy. The numbers get much bigger. You've got client assessment at 65 basis points, uh, sort of before that first meeting. Behavioral coaching, 244 basis points. Goal mm. optimization, which I don't think many people think about much at all, at, at 89 basis points. So the least, the least impactful behavioral piece was more impactful than the most impactful meat and potatoes financial piece. And yet all of the research shows that when clients are looking for a financial advisor, they're looking at all the old school stuff. They're looking mm-hmm. at sort of the technical prowess, the, you know, the investment acumen, which is important, but it's just not as important. What do we as an industry need to do to help both clients and professionals understand that the reality is that the soft stuff is actually the hard stuff. The soft stuff is the important stuff. What, what do we need to do to, to make this realization stick? Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I love that, um, that meta study that you were sharing. It's interesting because it's all framed in basis points, Mm. right? So that would say, Typically, we think of basis points as either cost or benefit based on a portfolio value, right? So even the way that the 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 subject is phrased, even though the way the stu- the study is phrased in a way that says, "How much added value do I add to your portfolio?" Yeah, what's doing this, these things? What's this empathy right? going to do for my dollar by bottom line? Yeah, right. And so does so does AUM pricing, mm-hmm. right? That's about what that's about your portfolio. So I think we've trained clients to believe that that's where the value is. And they've picked us up. They've picked up on it, that that's where the value is. So I don't think it's their fault. I think it's ours. You know, I mean, even, yeah, even in this study framing that the the benefit is bits on a portfolio. I was just meeting with a potential client this morning and they said, you know, I want to be honest with you. We have 
we have very little interest in managerial money outside of Vanguard. We've got well-diversified, low-cost index funds there. We could use a, you know, a, a second set of eyes on the asset allocation, but we feel really confident there. It's all qualified money and you know, there's no tax loss harvests to, to worry about. But we need help with how much do we need to save for retirement? And how do we balance that with college? And how do we handle inconsistent income? And what do we do about equity comp? Do we exercise now and and hold? And how does that impact our ability to reach our goals? And why does our cash flow feel so challenging if we're making more money than we've ever made in our whole lives? And that's the work that I do as a financial planner. I, I think arguably that's on the soft stuff list, but that's pretty much all the value that I add as a financial planner is on that softer side. And I think it makes all the difference in the world. I think if you think of a client, you know, either trucking along linearly and making slow progress over time, or being able to hit those inflection points, which, you know, for me, I work with clients in their thirties and forties who often have equity comp. So they have these moments, usually between age 35 and 45, where there are some really critical decisions to make. Do we buy a cabin? Or do we buy a rental property that will create income for us and be a long-term asset? You know, do we do we buy the cabin now or do we do it three years from now? Do I continue with linear growth or can I really get the curve to go upwards? And these critical moments and the decision-making that happens when that equity comp comes to fruition, those are the moments that are worth all the money for the client. And they really have very little to do with the investment portfolio. It's about the the supporting them in and being a thought partner in those critical decision moments. And I love working with this demographic because there's so many of them. Do we do public or private school? And, you know, the answer to all questions isn't you do the one that makes you the most money, because I will tell clients, like, if your goal is to be wealthy when you die, um, as wealthy as possible, I am not the planner for you. My, my goal is to help you like live a life that you enjoy both now and in the future and balance the two. You will probably become wealthy by doing it but I want to help you make wise decisions with that as the goal. So, you know, it's it's interesting, like even trying to think about old school versus new school, because I'm so very much in this sort of like new school space that that's where the value is, period. I don't think of it as soft. I think of it as like, that's what a real financial planner does. I don't know if I actually answered your question about what we should do about it, but... <laughs> I think I think you had a great insight in that even the way that it's framed, it's framed in sort of an investment language. It's framed in BIPs, right? So we are swimming in this water of of the old school and in ways that we don't fully comprehend sometimes. I laugh. Uh, I wrote a book on goals based uh, goals based investing in 2013, and I was so excited. Uh, that I was going to like get people to stop looking at the S&P and really focus on their goals. And I went to San Diego and I spoke about it to a, a large group of folks and I thought it was going really well and sharing some of my research. And I get to the end and a gentleman raises his hand and goes, I love this stuff. You know, if the market's having a down year, uh, I, we're going to really, uh, this is great. We're going to keep our clients focused on their goals but what if their performance really stomped the benchmark one year? And I would just really like to compare it to the S&P. Can I do that? And I just like, oh, like pull my hair out. Like, no, this isn't some parlor trick for, you know, this yes. is a, this is a thread that should run through everything in your client's lives. This isn't some parlor trick for you to get their attention on something else when, when performance is bad. This is, sort of a way of being in a way of, of, of going to market. 
So let's, let's talk about goal optimization for a moment. Everyone says they do goals-based planning now, uh, but I think that that looks very different from person, from, from person to person and from tech to tech. We also know that clients can have very muddy sort of impersonal takes on what their goals are. You know, if I think if you ask the average client, they're going to say something like make more or be rich or retire or something which is, is vague and not necessarily as, as salient or as vivid as it needs to be to, to activate sort of the best uh, behavioral outcomes from that. So in your experience, both on the tech side and the planning side, what does good goals-based planning look like? Mm. I would say good goals-based planning starts with core values. Mm which, you know, I, I say this a lot that I want to be a feeler, but really I'm a thinker. So I take a very tangible approach to, to core values. It's not to say that my clients have goals like, you know, ride a unicorn, you know, we're still working on retirement, put money in 529s for college and lots of more standard financial planning goals. But we are also working on, like I have a client right now who fun and adventure are two of their core values. And so we have planned for them to move to Europe for three years. And it, it's not going to make them as wealthy as possible when they die, right? But that's a goal that's very tangible for them because it really allows them to live out a core value that's important to them. I would say on a, on a personal level, um, my, my husband and I use this as well. And although we didn't plan for my husband to leave his job last month, because we know what our core values are, our financial decisions are more driven by those than what our goals are. So he was able to leave his job. He has no plans for what's next. I'll carry the fam for as long as I need to so that he can figure out what meaningful work looks like to him in the next season because meaningful work is one of our core values. Mm -hmm. And I got the same gift from him a few years ago when I left LearnVest. I, I didn't know how to pursue meaningful work. I knew what was meaningful to me, but I didn't know what it looked like. Do I work at a fintech company? Do I open a practice? Do I consult? What does it look like for me to use the skill set that I've put together to most positively impact as many people as possible? And I got the freedom and space to rebuild my career from that point. And now, I mean, I would do, I will do this forever. I love it so much. So I think that core values are a really important missing piece in a very tangible way. When a client says meaningful work is important, like you got to double click on that. What does meaningful work mean to you? Does it mean your team? Does it mean the mission of the company? Does it mean your role at the company? And then what are the financial goals that come out of that, right? Do we need to plan for you to make less? Do we need to plan for you to make more? Do we need to plan for you to take two years off while your kids are home because they're little? Like what, what, what are those tangible financial goals that come out of the core values that are important to you? So I would say, you know, I could soapbox on that all day, but I would say starting with core values is critical. I, I think we often jump straight to goals where it should really go values lead to goals, which then lead to specific behaviors, right? So what are your, yes. what are your core values? Let those shape your goals. And I think very few people have a core value of get as rich as possible. I really, mm -hmm. I really think very few people have that. But I think if you ask them their goals, like what are your financial goals, like more money, you know, some some nebulous amount of more uh, is what their goal is. But if you ask about core values, I think you're going to get more meaningful answers around goals, which are they going to lead you to the specific behaviors. I think oftentimes we don't start at the root. We kind of jump straight to the behaviors like save 10% yes. of your money. Like why? 
you know, and there's no there's no sort of rocket fuel behind it. I, I believe that these values are the the rocket fuel that that power you through the difficult times because everything we're asking our clients to do is difficult, right? Saving, investing, dealing with uncertainty, uh, enduring saving as like a present loss is how we perceive it. All that's hard. And I don't think any of it happens if you don't have that rocket fuel of those things that ma- mean the world to them. So. Totally. It's it's why it matters. Yeah. I mean, I will tell you that, you know, personally, I, I have had a goal to, so, you know, my husband and I are planning to be able to retire at X age. Um, but I've always had this dream of being able to be like, hey, by the way, you could retire at any point from today forward and we would be perfectly good. I've just like wanted to create that reality for him. And intra, I, I sure I sure as heck didn't think it would happen when we were 40. But in planning for that, in in knowing that that was something that I that I that we valued, but that I was working towards for our family and our finances, it feels really good to be able to say, you know what, because we made all those good decisions over the last 10 years, we really didn't know where life was going to take us. But now that we're here, mm-hmm. um, because we had the why that drove the goals, that drove the behaviors, we are able to walk through things with much more flexibility because it drove the right behaviors and it gave us the motivation to do them. So, you know, I don't think any financial plan is going to tell you not to save, invest, or, you know, in many cases, pay down some debt, right? But so I think those behaviors are not novel, but I think starting with core values and then connecting them to the goals that matter to drive those behaviors I think is really powerful. And and I think honestly, like when I talk about goals-based planning, um, maybe I take a step beyond goals-based planning to then say to a client, we have to hold these goals with an open hand because especially because I work with clients in their 30s and 40s who largely have young families and equity comp, things are going to change. There's no way in heck that we're going to say this is what life's going to look like 30 years from now and it's going to look like that. There's no way we can say that five years from now. And when I ask them to think about five years ago, what they thought was possible, what they were making, what they thought they where they thought they'd be five years later, it's not where they are now. And so I think as important as goals-based planning is, it's driving those behaviors so that they can be ready for whatever comes. And so holding those goals with an open hand. Yeah, there's this there's this end of history illusion, right? Where we think that, you know, I'm 42. So if you ask me, you know, what's 42-year-old Daniel like compared to 32-year-old Daniel, I would say, oh, way different. Um, but then when you ask people, what's 52-year-old Daniel going to be like relative to 42-year-old Daniel, we go, oh, pr- probably like this, but a little more gray. Like, you mm-hmm. know, we we underestimate how much we can change and how much life can change. I think the last two years have been a good reminder that life can change a whole lot. And if we have the North Star of those goals, things will be okay, even though a lot may change in the interim. So I I love your approach. So I'm super excited to hear this. One of the battles that we are in uh, up against as an industry is this knowing doing gap. The -hmm. research suggests that uh, people who receive financial advice, only about half of them take it. And we see this everywhere. Um, I ran across a stat recently that doctors and nurses smoke at a higher rate than the general population, which I found really fascinating. Right? Oh my the, gosh. the people, you know, the people who go to school for 12 years to tell us not to smoke, uh, smoke at a much higher rate than the general population. 
And you say that in your practice, you have a very, very high implementation rate with your advice. And there's some things that you do to make that so. So give us your secrets. What can we do? To get, <laughs> uh, give, give us your secrets. What can we do to get advice to stick at a higher rate so we don't have clients who are smoking doctors and nurses? Yeah. I mean, you know, read advice that sticks. I think there's like experts out here who specialize in this area. So I, I, you know, I love, I love the work and advice that sticks, but I would say for me, you know, with a lot of this stuff, I know I'm speaking to a PhD. I I'm a Ferris Bueller about a lot of stuff, like never had one lesson, learned to play the saxophone because whatever. So a lot of this is just organic to like the career path that I've been on and, and what I've experienced works and what doesn't work. So I would say that some reasons why my clients tend to implement quite a bit um, on the advice that I give is because I filter any piece of advice I give them through an impact filter, right? How much difference is this going to make for them? Is it going to make a lot of difference or is it just going to have a little impact? Because if it's going to have a little impact, maybe we'll get to that in year three or four or five when we're fine tuning, right? But I'm going to give them the most impactful things to do first. And if I can optimize for having some early wins, like things that are relatively easy to implement and also have high impact, we're going to focus on those first. Um, I think in fintech, I got used to thinking about what if I only had five minutes with a, with a user, with a client? What if I only could show them one thing in a digital interface? What would have the most impact for them? And getting outside of this like luxury of comprehensive financial planning. And I think that really led me to this place of prioritizing impact and ease of implementation as two primary factors for the advice that I give. And so, so I, think that's, I think that's a piece of it. I think another piece of it is that I am a thought partner with my clients. I am not in charge and I am a do it with you kind of advisor, not a do it for you kind of advisor. So it's very important to me that my clients take ownership and that it's their decision and not mine. So if they've decided that this is the picture of their life that they want to go towards, that these are the core values that are important to them and that these are the goals that they want to pursue, then I can help them know what the action steps would be, what the behaviors would be to implement that picture. But it's a picture that they drew. It's, it's, it's like I gave them the black and white and they colored it in. And so they have ownership over that picture. I didn't draw them a picture and say, here, go, go, go do this because it'll do this picture that I made for you. It's something that the, the user has, or sorry, the client has colored in. And so they have real ownership over that. And I think that really helps with, with implementation. Um, and then I think the fact that, you know, in my private practice, I am a financial planner first and an asset manager in a distant second. Not because I'm not good at it, but because the bulk of the impact that I have for clients is not about their portfolio. It's about all this other stuff. And so I think aligning my the way that I charge to where my value is sets us up for what they should expect. If I'm making money on their assets and I'm like, go do these other things, it's just, to me, a less straightforward, a less transparent experience. So they've paid me to hold them accountable. And that's what I'm going to do. They've paid me to help them draw the black and white so that they can color it in. And that's what I'm going to help them do. And so I think it's just like the, the client sitting in a seat of ownership in the experience with me that leads to a lot of the, the ease of implementation. 
so many brilliant insights there. There's there's something in psychology known as the Romeo and Juliet effect, where the more parents disapprove of something, the more kids love it. And we see this <laughs> we see this all the time. It's like it's a human tendency. If someone tells you to do something or not to do something, you want to go 180 degrees the other way. So when we sort of command our clients from on high, like, well, you've got to do this, right? When we're when we're overly directive and we're not thought partners in the ways that you've talked about. The natural human behavioral response to being told you must do something is to push back and say, like, no, that's a limit on my autonomy. That's a limit on my freedom. And so I think that's one good principle I'm taking from that is be a partner. Take this journey with them arm in arm rather than sort of, you know, giving giving advice from on high because that sort of rubs rubs humankind the wrong way in a very real sense. And, you know, I, I was chuckling when you were talking about, you know, we'll call it picking your battles, focusing on ease and impact. I think that's a great uh, framework. My wife and I have had this conversation recently. We have a 12-year-old daughter who we love very much if she's listening to the show. But we have a 12-year-old daughter who insists on wearing shorts and T-shirts in 30-degree weather. And my wife, when when my wife takes her to school, she sort of fights her on this and tries to point out the irrationality of it. And, you know, they they get in these dust ups. And I've said, look, it's a low impact thing. Like save your battles. You have plenty of you have plenty of important things you need to teach a, a preteen child. Right. There's there's plenty of important life-changing big crossroads that a young adult will come to save <laughs> save your breath right save your breath for the things with the highest impact because i think sometimes as parents and as advisors uh we get we get tangled up in these low impact situations that sometimes aren't that easy like we're asking a lot and the impact is relatively small so give them something to work on that's easy that will bear fruit quickly, and that will be an incentive for them to take further advice from you, I think is a, is a brilliant, brilliant way to think about it. Thanks. I appreciate that. And I, I deeply uh, resonate. Your example deeply resonates. I have two boys, nine and seven, and same sort of thing. It's like the constant management of pick my battles and and what 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 really matters in this moment and what what can I let go? You know, I think I'm better at it as a financial planner than a parent, um, but it's a constant, it's a constant battle. Yeah, I'm I'm certainly not great at it, at it as a parent, but I'm I'm learning hopefully. And then finally, <laughs> one one last thing that I thought was interesting from your podcast with Brendan was that you you have a phrase that you see as sort of a red flag for lack of clarity, and that phrase was "What do you think?" So tell us when an advisor hears "What do you think?" What should she be? thinking of and and what should she have her antenna up for? Yeah. You know, it was so interesting. Brendan, as I was, as I was speaking with Brendan on his podcast, he said, you know, I have this theory that if a client asks you, what do you think that maybe you didn't do your job all the way. And I said, I, I, I would agree. And the reason I would agree is because I think, you know, in the first several years of my career, I thought my job was to have the answers. I thought they came with problems and I came with solutions and they came with questions and I came with answers. And it was pretty, pretty cut and dry that that was my role as an advisor. And I think as life has humbled me <laughs> and parenthood has humbled me and my career has humbled me and I've just grown in perspective, 
I think I've realized that like, that is not my role virtually at all. Sometimes I need to have answers, right? There, there are very tangible things. I need to say, if you exercise those ISOs, you are going to hit AMT and here's what that's going to look like. And here's the risk. And here's whether I think you should do it. Sure. But I think in understanding my role as a thought partner and not the answerer of all things, I think what I really focus on in how I put information in front of a client, whether that's through the conversation or through the visuals that I put in front of them as we're talking, what I'm really focused on is how do I contextualize this piece of their life, the financial piece, the emotional piece, how do I contextualize this for them, usually as a couple, in a way that allows them to come to a great decision. And you know, a lot of times there's a range of good decisions. It just depends on what matters most to the client. And so I think for me, my goal is more, my, my purpose in working with clients is to present the information, to present the experience of being a client uh, for them in a way that allows them to make a great decision. And what's great as an advisor is that I don't have to be the bad guy, right? Like, I think a lot of the times we feel like bubble bursters of like, I hear you that you want to retire at 40. That is super not possible. So I don't have to burst bubbles because I can share the information in a way that they can come to their own conclusions and say, gosh, when I see what it would take to actually achieve that, that's not important to me enough to do what it would take to get there. But this other one feels really good. So let's do that. And then it's them making the decision. There are times when a client does ask me, what do you think? And I will tell them. And there are times when a client will ask, what have you done in your own financial life? And I will tell them. But I generally don't share virtually anything about me and my finances, not because I'm trying to hide it, but because I really want the focus to be on the client and what's right for them. And I don't want them to compare their decisions to mine. And, you know, I just, I want the whole experience to be about them. But yeah, they they ask me, what do you think very seldomly? Because I, I, I think I've curated an experience that allows them to come to the right conclusions for them through the process. Well, you've set forth a vision for technology and financial planning that is client-centric, that is cooperative, that I think is uh, holistic. And I hope that people will take some of your advice. I think there's some real subtle uh, psychological sophistication in a lot of these things that you've you've sort of stumbled upon organically and in the process of, of just trying to hone your craft. And I think there's a lot of great nuggets today. Um, if folks want more of these nuggets, if they want to follow you online, they want to learn more about you and your thinking and your practice, uh, where can we find you? Thank you. And thank you for your kind words. I, you know, I um, very much respect your work and I am very much a Ferris Bueller about all of this stuff that I'm happy to share the experience that I've gone through and the conclusions and the insights that I've come to. But, um, but that feedback means a lot. So thank you. In, in order to find me, I'd say LinkedIn is the best spot. Anything that I do, um, anything meaningful that I have to say ends up landing on LinkedIn. Um, I do have an email newsletter. So if you go to my website, it's natalieannetaylor.com um, and you can sign up for my newsletter. But really, I communicate on LinkedIn much more than I do via the newsletter. Okay. Thank you again for everything you've shared today. And I know folks will get a lot from it. Thanks again. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com.
All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.